from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. And this week, you know what? I'm going to do, frankly, what I usually do, which is just bring you in. What was I thinking about over the past week or two? And it was a bunch of things, but I happened to be revising an academic paper that I'm writing. And that paper happens to be about Black English. I don't usually do those, but I made an exception with this one because it's a topic that really grabs me. And, you know, in deciding what to do the show about, I thought, you know, I'm going to do what I'm thinking about. I don't want to do it about Kamala Harris or something like that. I'm not sure what I could get out of that. I want to do me. And so I'm going to share with you some stuff about the always fascinating dialect of American English, Black English. It's called by academics usually African-American vernacular English, but I have a hard time saying that, so we're just going to call it Black English. And we're going to look at it from various angles that I have been sitting around, laying around, still in semi-quarantine these days. And one of the things is going to be the lost am. That's what my paper is about. And this is something that I've brought up on this show before, and that is the question as to whether actual black American people ever, as linguists call it, overgeneralized am into persons and numbers beyond where it would go in standard English. And so, for example, I'll tell you I am a person. But In caricatures of black speech back in the day, the idea was that black people used am with all pronouns. And so you am this, he am that, we am the other thing. That's something associated with minstrel shows and comic strips. And you would think, you would quite reasonably think that that's something that white performers made up as a way of making fun of black people. That's what I thought for a very long time. But after a while, various indications seemed to suggest to me that actually, wait a minute, black people did once use am in a different way than mainstream English does. And of course, it wasn't all black people, but there have always been different ways of speaking English, even here in America. And it seemed to me that, well, you know, as I'm always telling all of you, language always changes. And black English is no exception. And so it seemed to me maybe actually the minstrels overdid it. They were caricaturing, but maybe there was that different usage of am because all these things seem to indicate it. And in a show that I did probably back in about 1947, remember when I used to be sponsored by Kraft Macaroni and Cheese? Way back then, I said that one evidence of this is that there are vernacular British dialects that use am in just that way. You am, we am, the black country in Britain is sometimes called the people who are the yam yams. And what they mean by that is that they say you am. So I gave you some evidence of that. But that was, you know, that was back right after the Second World War. And so what about newer evidence? Well, first of all, what do I mean by this, as you might call it, overgeneralized am? Well, Here is one of the latest examples of it in pop culture. This is a highly insignificant Hollywood cartoon from the studio that gave us such indelible characterizations as Casper, the friendly ghost, and Herman and Catnip, who were about the closest thing in real life to Itchy and Scratchy on The Simpsons. In any case, one of their other indelible characters was Buzzy the Crow, and Buzzy the Crow was supposed to was clearly supposed to be this this Black American little character. You know, remember the Dumbo Crows? Well, Buzzy was uh, uh, an extension of that, and so Buzzy uses reflections of the old minstrel dialect. This is a cartoon called No Ifs, Ands, or Buts. Buts is spelled with two Ts. It's about smoking. And this is what Buzzy says about a cat who seems to have a smoking addiction. Listen to him closely. Mm -hmm. That cat am a tobacco-smoking fiend. That's all I have to know. That cat am. You know, he am. That cat am a smoking fiend. Okay. So that's the caricature. But what's interesting is how often you see black American people depicted as speaking that way in many sources that you might think of as authoritative. And I have something even better than this. This is going to build up to a big find. We're we're circling in. We're, We're about to find the real thing. But some other stuff that I found. So, for example, there is a novel written by a black 
man, very conscious, as we used to say, black man. 1899, it's called Imperium in Imperio. And the guy's name is Sutton Griggs. And for whatever it's worth, his father was a Georgia slave. So Sutton Griggs, 1899, he's post-emancipation, but he would have heard authentic black speech, the speech of people who were denied education. And what's interesting is that in one of his novels, he is writing in a very serious vein. We would today call him a black nationalist. And he has a scene where there's a black mother who is being humiliated by a racist white school teacher. And she's trying to present her child and defend her child. And what she says, and this is a black writer of black nationalist stamp who grew up with a father who had been a slave and not in New York City, but in Georgia. So we're talking about where black English really arose. And I want to say throve, but that's not the word because it's thrived. And so he has the mother saying about her child, her son, his name and Belton Piedmont, Artera's granddaddy, Artera's after. So Not his name is Belton Piedmont. His name and Belton Piedmont. And she's a character of dignity. His name and Belton Piedmont. Not is Belton Piedmont. Am. Arter is granddaddy. Now what's Arter? Arter is after. And it shows how authentic this depiction of speech is in that we know that not only black people, but also, again, regional vernacular speaking British people used Arter. And it explains that problem with Jack and Jill. So, Jack and Jill went up the hill to get a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. What the hell is that? Is that the best they could do? Of course not. It was Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. After, because after can become after, can after, after. That is the way many people in, for example, Yorkshire still say after. After, it's dialectal after. And so there are always many people who said after, and they came here, and often they were either slave owners or they worked alongside slaves. And so early black English has after. Here's this woman, and she's saying his name, and Belton Piedmont. Arter is granddaddy. The Arter is very authentic. Are we going to really think that the am isn't? I don't think that Sutton Griggs would have put minstrel speech into the mouth of his character. Or something else. This is further back. This is the 1840s. There's a white minister, and he is entranced with this black preacher who he heard. And he calls this preacher a genius, and he's truly just amazed at this preacher and his linguistic skill. This white man says of this black, uneducated, but very articulate preacher, he says, he spoke in the true Negro dialect, but seemed to employ a refined, if you please, a classic species. It rolled from his lips with a sharpness of outline and distinctness of enunciation that seemed to impart to it a polish and a charm, transforming it into a language of beauty. Oh, the way people had to write... (laughs) In the 1800s, it's so artificial, but it can be so pretty. Very Lincoln. But that's what this guy says about this black man's speech. Then he gives samples of it. Now, here's a sample. And I warn you that this is going to sound like caricature. But this man meant it as respectful. The best I can do by reading this is just to read it. So this is one sample. It gives a very long sample of this man's beautiful speech. But, but brethren... The joy of the believer in Jesus am set forth in a figurative manner in the text. It am compared to water, to them what be dying of thirst. And it goes on and on, and you can definitely feel the articulateness and the content of it. But the language, the grammar, is like that, including the am. The believer in Jesus am set forth in a figurative manner in the text. It am compared. That looks so ridiculous to us today. But remember that this man loved the way this person talked and described it as refined. If you please, a classic species. It rolled from his lips with a sharpness of outline. I wonder, we can't know because these people are extremely dead, but you wonder whether this white man really was all of a sudden making this black man sound like a minstrel. And another thing is that minstrel shows were very new at the time. And so how many minstrel shows was this man seeing? We can't know. But things like this make you think that people really did say it am and you am. But now we're circling in. Something has been found. The problem has always been that you can say, well, it always seems to be on these pages 
but there's no recording of anyone actually using am that way in running speech. Now, there are people who say it on ancient records and even in some early talkies where they are reading something, reciting something that they were told to say. But in terms of somebody actually recorded just saying it, that's never existed, including a precious source, which is that giving people work in the Depression, one thing that happened, it's the most blessed thing, is that many people were set out to record ex-slaves, because at that time there were still a great many black people living who had actually been slaves, record ex-slaves talking about what they had been through. Nobody was thinking about linguistics, but it means that there are now thousands of interviews. Most of them exist only on paper, but thousands of interviews of people talking about what slavery was actually like. Now, about two dozen of them were actually recorded, and you can hear these people. And it's no longer that you have to go to some archive probably in D.C. Now you can just listen online. Now, it's always been assumed among people who specialize in this kind of thing that nobody on those couple dozen recordings uses this overgeneralized am. And that's often been seen as an indication that it isn't real. Makes perfect sense. But you know, the truth is, they do use it. It is on there. If you listen to every second of those two dozen odd recordings, there is one example. And you know what? I have a lot to do, and there are times when I can be a little bit lazy. I have to admit, I have not listened to every single second of those recordings. I've listened to many seconds of them, but not every single second. And there's somebody who has, I owe this observation to Charles Carson, and I was absolutely floored. One of these recordings is done in 1940. And the ex-slave is named Irene Williams. It's John Lomax, for those of you who happen to know who he is, who's doing the interview, and you can hear him for a second in the whole recording. And Irene Williams is talking about how things used to be. And, you know, she pops up with one of these ams. Now, the truth is that she is in a storytelling mode, and she might even be reading something that she wrote down. If she isn't, she's kind of reading something in her head. Nevertheless, she's talking about a very casual circumstance where she very casually uses the am. You, for the first time that anyone has highlighted this recording in order to indicate this, are going to hear Irene Williams, 80 years ago now, actually using what we call an invariant am in running speech. Here she goes, oh, trigger warning, by the way, she is going to use the N-word. That is constant in these recordings and interviews. It was used in a way quite similar to today. Everybody seems to think that that only started with hip-hop. No, 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 no. So there is that, but listen to this very old lady using earlier Black English. Morning, Dexter Smeezy. How's yours? Oh, I saw well, thank you. How's yours? That sure am a pretty dress what you got on. What'd you get it? <laughs> you gwine outshine all them niggas in Oak Grove Church today. Yes, man, you sure is gwine outshine us all. Now you shut your mouth, Jane. You know you're just poking fun at me. How's your ma? Where's Fanny? Oh, she coming. She got herself all dressed up. She say she gwine to get happy today and beat the very stuffing out of that gal of Susie. But I tell her, if that's the spirit she's gwine to church in, she gotta stay at home. But she promised me that she'd behave herself and be one of the first mooners on the beach. And I tell her she can come on to church. You heard it here first. So we're circling in. That is the most empirical evidence yet of the kind of am that for some reason has been obsessing me for about five years years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Anyway, it is time for a song, and something that fits 
somehow with this. It should be something involving black American people, but yeah, I want it to be some Broadway. So how about Pearly? Pearly was a black show actually written by white men, but Pearly is early 70s and it was a huge hit. I Got Love was the big hit. I frankly never liked that. I like the opening number, which was called Walk Him Up the Stairs. And we are going to use it partly because it's catchy and partly for another reason. But Pearly is somewhat underattended given how popular it was and given that it really is pretty decent material. So here is Walk Him Up, Walk Him Up, Walk Him Up the Stairs. You'll see that's how it goes. So why that? Partly because it's damn catchy, but partly because one of the people who was in the original cast of Pearly on Broadway, they did used to say it that way, Broadway, and I don't even need to tell my longtime listeners why, so I won't get into it, but on Broadway, one of the people in it was Sherman Hemsley. Sherman Hemsley became iconically famous for playing George Jefferson, and this dovetails us into the fact that I, as I've mentioned before, have been using quarantine to watch through all of the Jeffersons. And as you can imagine, I spend about 55% of the time thinking about how everybody's talking. And I noticed a little something that can teach us a little lesson about how weird language can be. Here is an episode of the second season. Mother Jefferson is dating a man. Briefly. It's one of these things where it's only for this episode. You know, I read the title. It says Mother Jefferson's Boyfriend. And I'm thinking, okay, it's 1976, and they're going to get some older gentleman to play her boyfriend. Who's it going to be? And how's he going to talk? And here, I was not disappointed. It was Alvin Childress. Now, Alvin Childress was about 70 at the time, and he had become famous for playing Amos on the television version of the Amos and Andy radio franchise that had become so famous. So in the early 50s, for two years, Alvin Childress very charmingly played Amos. Well, here he is 25 years after that. Now he's an elderly gent, and he is playing George Jefferson's potential new dad. Alvin Childress was born in Mississippi. Now, Listen to the way Alvin Childress says heard. It's nice meeting you, Mr. Jefferson. I've heard so much about you from your mother. You hear that? Hey. Listen to the way Alvin Childress said worked. You got a job? <laughs> no. Aha. Aha, what? Aha, you ain't got no job. That's what aha. <laughs> I haven't worked for years. Oh, you living on welfare, huh? And I'm not on welfare. Then you ain't got nothing. Now, wait a minute. You got this all wrong. I'm retired. Isn't that neat? And to me, it's neat because that is how my Atlanta grandparents talked. I didn't think about it at the time, but shirt was shite. They were black people of the Deep South who were minted in the early 20th century. And so when I was a kid, the old people talked that way when we visited them in Atlanta. So it doesn't surprise me to hear him say waked. But it might surprise some of you because we associate that with Popeye and Jimmy Durante and White Brooklyn. You think that er becomes oi only among them. No, that's just a normal process. And actually, as I have noted on this show before, but with different examples, that was a Southernism. You can hear white people doing it too, really entrenched in black speech in the first half of the 20th century. Then it falls away because vowels are always changing. But one more. Listen to Alvin Childress say motel work. As a matter of fact, you being in the cleaning business, I'm surprised you're not in hotel work. 
So Sherman Hemsley doesn't talk that way because he's younger than Alvin Childress, but Alvin Childress had that vowel. As soon as he walked on in that episode, I thought he's going to do woik and choich. That is the way that somebody from there at that time who was black would say church. And so, for example, let's listen to Irene Williams, who was a very religious woman. She talked about church a lot. Here's Irene Williams sounding just like, I doubt if she thought of it this way, but sounding just like Alvin Childress. But she promised me that she'd behave herself and be one of the first mooners on the beach. And I tell her she can come on to church. So if we're on the black vowels then there is something else that occurred to me. Listening to Alvin Childress, I'm feeling pretty secure. He is 07. He is 1907. How did black people talk in the deep past? Well, for one thing, I am pretty convinced that among black people using the vernacular register, they were using am with you, he, she, it, we, y'all, and they, as well as with I. But you listen to the church and you know that The vowels were different in the first half of the 20th century and certainly in the last half of the 19th at least. But how much can you hear? How far back can you go? And it got me thinking about the very first black people we can hear recorded. The very first black person we can hear recorded is in 1891. And it's a certain singer named George Johnson who sang very silly And although it wasn't his fault, this is all anybody wanted to hear, very racist songs. And you're listening to these cylinders, and they're 4,000 years old, and I'm not going to put you through George Johnson. It's just, it's, it's hard to hear what he's saying, it's unpleasant, the songs aren't very good. But if you want to get after George Johnson, you can go about 10 years later, and it's Williams and Walker. Burt Williams seems to have a major renown these days because he went solo and was in the Ziegfeld Follies and he had his very articulate, sad sack character that he did. So Burt Williams one hears about, but he started out as part of a vaudeville duo. It was Williams and Walker. And George Walker played the kind of happy, clowny type of person. So Burt Williams was kind of the profound sad sack. And George Walker was kind of Jamie Foxx. If you have a sense of what he was doing, although it was 125 years ago, he was kind of the Jamie Foxx in the pair. And what's interesting is that we can hear them. They made a few records, and it was in the aughts, and so it depends on what you call a record in terms of what technology was like then. But you can hear them, and you know they sound utterly bizarre. You think, well, I'm going to listen to these black people like the Jeffersons. And they don't sound anything like the Jeffersons. They don't sound like Alvin Childress. Often, they sound like they're from Iowa. More often, they sound like they're from Jamaica. They have a completely different sound, and yet they were perfectly normal. And the reason is because vowels, not only in any language, but in any dialect of any language, are always shifting around. You never know what's going to happen to them. And so Latin's vowels become Spanish's vowels. Latin's vowels become Ladino's vowels. I'm glad so many of you liked that show. I enjoyed it too. But vowels are always moving around. Nowadays, we often hear about vowels moving around in colloquial young American English, and they do. And so, for example, in (laughs) the dialect you could call, quote-unquote, white girl, and it's not only girls and it's not only white, but this white girl dialect Eh is becoming ah. It's getting really, really close because eh and ah are next door to each other in the mouth. Eh is falling. Remember that old commercial where it was about, like they'd have Jane Russell and I'm wearing the the 18-hour bra. And you always kind of wonder, well, what happens after 18 hours? Well, whatever supposedly happens after that time, that can happen to vowels. And so eh is falling into ah. What do I mean by that? Let's listen to Aubrey Plaza, because one, I adore her, and two, she speaks perfect early 21st century white girl. I doubt if she's aware of it, but she really does exemplify these, (laughs) as we say, vowel movements. Listen to her talking to Conan X time ago, and just listen to her talking about redheads having more, if I may, sex. I've read a lot of facts about redheads, and one of them is that redhead people have more sex or something. I think I read that. Think about it. If you were a Martian and you had to transcribe what she was saying and you were new to English, she didn't say redheads, she said radhad. 
She's talking about redheads having more sex. Listen to her. I, I've read a lot of facts about redheads, and one of them is that redhead people have more sex or something. I think I read that. So that's typical vowel shifting. Now let's go somewhat further back in time, but it's a lot further. And you have to bear with me because these guys are using truly barbarically primitive recording technology. And on top of that, tastes and humor change. These were supposed to be funny songs. Now they're about as funny as, as epoxy. They're not funny. And musical tastes change. These were catchy songs at the time. Now, frankly, you would rather watch an apple turning brown. There's no such thing as jazz when these songs were done. So you're not going to enjoy this. But listen through this crackling sound to these very, very successful black men singing what at the time, for some reason, was a very popular song. This is called Pretty Desdemone. It's from one of their three big shows. This one is from Abyssinia. That's right. And so Pretty Desdemone. And what I want you to listen to is George Walker. He's the Jamie Foxx. Everybody thought that he was funny. The Pratt Falls. He's hip. And he's singing Pretty Desdemone. Listen to his vowels. You hear that? Like, pretty Desdemon. What's moon? What? Why does he sound like some Cornish farmer or something like that? Or if anything, he sounds West Indian. And then listen, he's like, well, that's what I'm going to do when he's talking. That's what I'm going to do. He doesn't talk like black people now. And yet he was not from Jamaica. He was not from any acre or anything at all. He's from Kansas. He was just a guy from Kansas. Perfectly ordinary speech. That's the way black people sounded then. Anybody who recorded then who was black, you hear those same weird to our ear West Indian vowels. So he's pretty Desdemon. If you want to hear more, there's an even less listenable cut that they made the same day called My Little Zulu Babe. And if you can listen through all of them, you hear the same weird vowels that don't sound anything like what we think of as black speech. Now, that's because vowels have shifted. And so vowels are now shifting from a to a, and so you get Aubrey Plaza. Well, vowels have shifted from Oh, to the way Jamie Foxx would sing the same song, although I really hope that he never sings it. It really sheds light on certain things. I am born in 1965. My father was born in 1927. My father had a father. All evidence suggests that he had one. There survives, I think, one picture of him, which is hanging not far from where I'm recording now. And he would have been minted in the 1890s. And, you know, time passes. He died in 62. I never met him. And it's interesting if, you know, somebody didn't happen to be famous, how quickly nobody really remembers anything about them. If I say, well, what was John Hamilton McWhorter III like? Then people have about three things to say. And one of them, I've gotten this many times over the years, people who are now old enough that they remember him say that he sounded like he was from the islands. They say that he had this West Indian sound. Well, you know, he wasn't from the islands. My sister has actually traced exactly his history. He was actually from outside of Atlanta. And the reason that he must have sounded like he was from the islands, where he almost certainly never went and certainly didn't know how to talk, is because he talked like George Walker. He still had the old black English vowels. So that's why he would have sounded like that. Many people of his generation would have sounded like that. I'm going to put on my coat. In fact, all of the old ex-slaves on those recordings all sound that way. You think, this is a black American person? Because they always sound like they're from Jamaica. That's because black English has changed profoundly. By the way, folks, something that we have to talk about, a lot of you are going to know what's coming. And that is that, you know, you can get an extra bit of this show for a nominal 
fee. You can get a little tag at the end. Sometimes it's about what the show is about. Just as often it's about all sorts of other stuff. Often you get more music for those of you who like that, or you get other clips, but you can get an extra bit of the show for just a nominal fee. And not only do you get an extra bit of my show, but you would get an extra bit of all of the Slate podcasts that you listen to, and you don't have to listen to any ads. For that nominal fee, you sign up for what we call Slate Plus, and you can have a completely different listening experience, which frankly is good for us now because the virus has hit the media hard. Slate is media, and there's nothing to worry about. But frankly, quite frankly, we could use the extra money. And so please go to slate.com slash lexicon plus and sign up for Slate Plus. You'll be glad you did. And so, for example, for this episode, if you want to know what the intersection is between Abbott and Costello and Paul Robeson, the only place that you're going to find that out in your entire life is in the tag to this episode of Lexicon Valley. So go to slate.com slash lexicon plus and sign up for Slate Plus. It helps us. It will delight you. So, you know, I'm into this little jivey 70s groove. You know what I'm going to play now? There was, and you would almost wonder why there wouldn't have been, there was a Charlie Brown cartoon series. You know that somebody would have tried to make money by doing that every Saturday morning, and they did for about 15 minutes in the early 80s, and the show was called Charlie Brown and Snoopy, and it had the jamminest, cutest little theme song. It actually had a name. The theme song was called Let's Have a Party. And so here's the theme song, It Should Live. The Linus and Lucy, boom, 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 boom. That's the best song ever written. But this is damn good as well. So let's have a party. This is the jammy little Charlie Brown and Snoopy song that I remember hearing right around when I went to college, wishing that I could keep watching the show, which I didn't. And because I stopped watching it, of course, it went off the air. I'm sitting here talking about how they don't have the black sound of today. Well, what is that sound? And when you're listening to these hitherto unknown recorded invariant ams, and then you want to share with your podcast listeners, Williams and Walker, you start thinking about, well, do they know what the modern black sound is? And we need to investigate these things specifically. Something that you have to be careful about but I'd like to be careful with you about this. You ever notice that even if you can't see a person, almost always, if they're black, you can tell. Come on, you know. You're not supposed to admit it, but you know it's true. Now, there are people who throw you, but most of the time, the vast majority of times, you can tell. Well, what is it? And we're often told that it's racist to even think about it. No, it isn't. It's actually a very interesting subject. And so I'm always talking about black English, and I'm talking about things like this am that stick right out. But as you know, even if there were a black person who was reading from something written by Jonathan Franzen, most of the time there's something that would tell you what it was. You want to know what that is? Yeah, of course you want to know what that is. Yes, we're going to we're going to go here and I am shamelessly using my own race to allow us to go here. Here's a person. I'm not even going to give his name. That's not important. But here is a person. He's going to say something. And I want to talk about a part of the economy that has been making me scratch my head. Um, we're in the midst of this major recession. We all know that by now. But in the midst of this recession, Unlike the last recession, the entire housing market has not crashed. There are parts of American housing doing really, really well and other parts doing pretty, pretty bad. 
had. And I want to break down this kind of best of times, worst of times moment for the American housing market. And no better two folks to do it than y'all. Notice how you can tell? Well, what is it? There are a couple of things that you can hear there that we are very sensitized to. This has been tested more than once. Americans are very good at telling whether somebody is white or black based on some standard English passage played. For example, let's listen to the way this person says time. Oh, I appreciate it. Now, last time we talked, you were having some AC issues, like there was an air conditioning unit or not. Was that resolved? Very subtle, but the I is more like ah. So he's not saying time. He's not Gomer Pyle. But still, there's time and there's time. Listen to him. Now, last time we talked, you were having some AC issues. Also, the unfortunate word pandemic. Demic, dimic, in between, demic. Demic, dimic, demic. Listen to him. I remember also, for a while in this lockdown pandemic moment, you were going on like night runs through Manhattan. Those two things alone are part of what can tip you off about these things. Perfectly subconscious and they matter not a whit. However, black people tend to talk to one another more than they talk to white people, especially at a young age. And the result is that the vowels develop somewhat differently among black people than they do among, for example, Latino Americans or white Americans or some other Americans. So different vowels in Latin that goes to Spanish as opposed to goes to Portuguese as opposed to goes to Ladino. Same thing in microcosm with black English. So listening to this person again, Listen to the way he says I. I know, right? Um, I know, Cardiff, you're a little mad because you thought we were taping this show a day later. <laughs> Same thing. More like ah. Not ah, but more like ah. End is a little more like end. It's in between. End. It's things like that. There's a handful of things like that. Want to go further? I know, this is a little awkward, but it's also real and it's harmless. These are the sorts of things that make linguistics interesting. Here's someone else. Listen to her say, actually tangible action. They're saying that they want leaders who are not just progressive thinkers, but who are actually on the ground in their neighborhoods, talking to them and taking what they say and putting that into tangible action. Perfect, normal English. But if you're listening to her, that actually tangible action is one of the things that subconsciously tips you off that she happens not to be white because the a ah is, as we linguists call it, slightly raised. The difference between a ah and a. Ah. Very subtle. Similarly, listen to this clip. You know, we have to be careful these days about Bill Cosby for the obvious reason, but oh, let's face it, the show, the sitcom was delightful. And many of us will remember little Rudy and her relationship with little Bud and the way she would say Bud to tease him. Listen to this. Rudy, can I ask you a question? Sure. Speaking as a woman, if you were married, would you go to Boston without your husband? Elvin, I'm not a woman. Yes, you are, just like I'm a man. <laughs> you're no man, you're Bud. <laughs> <laughs> and also listen to her saying my love, not only the ma, but how does she say love? If you were married to me, would you go to Boston? First of all, I'm not going to marry you. You would if I told you to. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. You have to earn my love. <laughs> all of that plays on the fact that in black English, not only is ah slightly raised to ah, but ah uh goes up. We don't think of it as up, but there's a difference between ah uh and uh. Now, of course, we're not dealing with uh. The bud is exaggerated. But playing back the person I just played, let's listen to her say but and then the word what. Um, but I do want to point out that in this moment, um, I think it's important to specifically pay attention to the Black electorate right now with the emphasis on Black women and what they are really hoping to see come of this announcement. Just a little, but it's just that little bit, that little bit of difference 
that gives you a sense of it. Or, this gives me an opportunity to return to Hamilton. I used Hamilton on the show. This is even before World War II. I remember I did Hamilton on this show sometime around when FDR was elected. Remember back then when I was being sponsored by Campbell's Soup and I had the guy on who was talking about all the hayos in Hamilton, etc. Well, let's go back to Hamilton and I want to show you something else that very subtly tips you off. It's why you don't need to see a person often to know what color they are, even if they're reading from the phone book. So this is Right Hand Man. I believe this is when George Washington is introduced. And there's so many great rhymes in Hamilton. This has actually always been one of my favorites, but partly for a geeky linguistic reason. And so listen to this right here. Can I be real a second for just a millisecond? Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second. Now I'm the model of a modern major general, the venerated Virginian veteran whose men are all lining up. Real a second, millisecond, how I feel a second. So real a second, millisecond, feel a second. Now you can just hear a certain kind of person saying, well, technically that doesn't rhyme because real and mill are different vowels. <laughs> okay, that might be technically true or it's true in mainstream English, not in black English because e is more like i in black English. I doubt if Manuel Lynn Miranda was thinking about this consciously, but he has a full immersion in the dialect. And so it's not real a second. In Black English, it's more like real a second, and that does rhyme with millisecond, and therefore you can then follow it with how I feel a second. That's just the way it is. Those of you who love rap will hear this perfectly. So E is more like I, and therefore these are the sorts of things. It's these tiny little vowel colorations that are a great deal of why, even if you feel guilty admitting it, you can tell it's there. And so it's not just slang, even if somebody's not using the slang, even if somebody isn't using the grammatical differences. Nowadays, there is no invariant am, but anything with ain't or, you know, what had happened was, even then, you can almost always tell. And the reason is because of these slightly different vowel colorations. In any case, I'm now still in this jammy when I was 11 mood. I think it's partly because this quarantine has been going on for a long time and it's getting me nostalgic. You know what else I'm watching? Not only the Jeffersons, I'm watching the old Abbott and Costello sitcom, which is really just quintessentially almost surreally stupid. And yet I'm sitting there. It's like I'm engaging it the way I should be engaging Joyce. It really is the weirdest thing. So it's that and the Jeffersons, I alternate between the two. But in any case, I want these 70s, because of course everything was great in the 70s because I was a child. And so a little bit of spinners, I've used Love or Leave before, but what a great song. One of the B-sides of Pick of the Litter, and so good. If you are by any chance an ear player on the piano, try to work out a couple of the main chords that this lands on. This is also very complicated music, but just, well, it's good because it reminds me of being nine, which is very narrow of me, but I can't help it. Crutch 
we have to do a little more because now that makes me think of the Jeffersons again. And more to the point, yes, I'm just sticking that in as the transition for the podcast. But I have been watching the show and I have been thinking about language. And I, I can't help it. And I think you'll enjoy this. This is, this is really interesting. So here is an episode. For those of you who are interested, it's the episode called Florence's Problem, which dramatically makes no blessed sense at all. But in Florence's Problem, at one point, George and Louise have an exchange. Louise starts it out by saying this thing. It's this riddle. And then what's interesting is that you can hear George say the exact same thing. So that means we're listening to the actress Isabel Sanford and the actor Sherman Hensley saying the exact same thing as people and black people in 1976. So Isabel Sanford says, if a man wears a size 44 belt, I... (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. I once went as Louise for Halloween. Anyway, so she has this way of speaking. Listen to her first. If a man wears a size 34 belt, what size suspenders does he wear? The thing about Isabel Sanford is that she grew up in Harlem in the 1930s, and she has perfect R-less English dialect. And what I mean by that is that not just in black English, but in mainstream New York English, you tended to leave the R's off at the end of syllables. So not corner, but corner. Not Parker, but Parker. So Isabel Sanford, as a very standard speaking person and character, is very R-less. And so it's, if a man wears, not wears, but wears a size 44 belt, she spoke the most magnificently R-less English. And then, what size suspenders, suspenders does he wear? So, suspenders does he wear? Suspenders does he wear? Okay, so that's her. But then when Sherman Hensley says it, in this scene, he's R-less too. So listen to him. If a man wears a size 34 belt, what size suspenders does he wear? Okay, so they sound the same in terms of their R-lessness. But what's interesting is that I watched them do that, and I thought, that's a little off, because Isabel Sanford grew up in New York, but Sherman Hemsley grew up in my Philadelphia. He talks exactly the way all of my older relatives talk. And here's a crucial difference in terms of arlessness between New York and Philadelphia. Philadelphia was more arful, so to speak. So, New York... Very Arliss, very Isabel Sanford, very FDR. Boston, you know, Paca, Pac the Ka. That was not true of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a little quirky in that way. If you weren't a South Philly Italian, and if you weren't Irish, and a great many people in Philadelphia weren't, if you were not white in that way, you had those R's at the end of syllables, and that included black people. So I thought... I wonder why they sound alike here. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Hemsley, because he's playing George Jefferson, who's a very slangy sort of person, is speaking blackly when he's doing George. Isabel Sanford, usually on the show, was being kind of grandiloquent. But Sherman Hemsley was being this character of his. I thought, I'll bet in casual speech, Isabel Sanford was arless because everybody in New York was, whether they were speaking black English or not. But I'll bet in casual speech, as opposed to black English, Sherman Hemsley was R full. So black English is inherently R-less. And so, you know, mole money, et cetera, et cetera. But I was thinking, I'll bet for him, when he just talked, he was R full. Well, how do you know? Because on the show, they're playing characters and they're reciting from a script. But late in their lives, they were interviewed. And you get to hear them speaking at great length about the Jeffersons. And you know what? I happened this time to be right. So listen to Isabel Sanford late in her life. She was as R-less as ever, just sitting there talking. She's not performing. She's not trying to sound like she's in the theater. So listen to how she says Roker, as in Roxy Roker, as in Roca, and together, together. And then how she says Mother. I knew Roxy in New York. Roxy Roker, we we been plays together in New York. Tell me about Zara Cully. She played Mother Jefferson. Oh, Mother Jefferson. Dear Zara. I knew her a few years before she got into All in the Family. 
And she used to, whenever we run across each other, you know, actors in, for auditions and what have you, you run across each other and all. And she used to say, Isabel, if ever you have to have a mother to play, someone to play your mother, call me. Please call me. I said, I certainly will. So she sounds like Wheezy, except, you know, later in life. Now, here's Hemsley around the same time. And listen to him when he's speaking casually. And never only like Frank and Colbert and, <laughs> and Marlowe. We, you know, just we used to just crack up a lot when we were supposed to be serious. Only in, only in rehearsals, though. Not that we weren't professional-minded, but it was just... Uh, we were a bunch, of, a bunch of nuts, is what it was. Paul Benedict. Mm. <laughs> I think Paul was the big instigator. He used to, because uh, you know, he could keep a straight face longer than anybody else, you know, so he used to always do things and nobody, nobody would, uh, he never got caught. See, Franklin Cover, he says Cover, not Cova. So Isabel Sanford would have said, oh yes, Franklin Cover. But he says Cover. Or she would have said, oh, yes, Paul Benedict was the great instigator. But he says instigator the way my father would have said it. And so that's because they're from different places. So when Sherman Hemsley is off stage, he's awful. Isabel Sanford is our list. And you can just tell. And all this is subconscious. Neither one of them ever thought about that. I'm sure I didn't know them. But they weren't thinking about it. But Sherman Hemsley subconsciously would switch between instigator in his standard variety and then with his, say, size 44 belt in his black English. He had those two ways of speaking and there was a lot of bleed between them. And when he played George, he spontaneously went Arliss. That's what it is to speak real language. Most people speak more than one version of whatever it is that they speak and they don't think about it. Sometimes the version that they speak that's more casual is considered awful. Sometimes it's considered just different. But this is what it is to speak real language. Fans of the show will remember that all of a sudden, for some reason in the second season, there's this other guy playing Lionel, the son. It starts out as Michael Evans, and then bang, it's Damon Evans, and nobody bats an eye. But what's interesting is that both of the guys who played Lionel were named Evans, Michael Evans and Damon Evans, and they weren't related. There were so many things like this on the Jeffersons. It was a very mystical show. So Lionel is involved with the Willis's upstairs daughter, Jenny. Lionel is Michael Evans at first. Jenny is Berlinda. Berlinda, that's such a pretty name. Berlinda Tolbert. Michael Evans and Berlinda Tolbert were born one day apart, believe it or not. And not only one day apart, but both of them in the state of North Carolina. There's even a little more. In real life, Michael Evans got married to a woman whose last name was Jefferson. Isn't that amazing? And I know what you're thinking, and the answer is nobody would read it. So all that's going to happen is me sharing this stuff here. I'm going to go out on Walk Him Up the Stairs again because it's just so good. And, you know, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe. Or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. You know, Helen Willis on the show, Roxy Roker, she was married to a white man in real life, too. And, yes, she was Al Roker's cousin. And you can kind of see it in their faces and she was Lenny Kravitz's mother and that means that Zoe Kravitz called Helen Willis grandma in any case Mike Volo is as always the editor and I am John McWhorter <laughs> 